Hey, welcome to How to Pakistan once again. Salam. My name is uh, Musharraf Zaidi. I think that's your cue, Fussy. <laughs> and uh, hello, this is Fussy, and uh, everyone, welcome to How to Pakistan. And we're back with another episode. Lots of uh, different headwinds going on around the world, and we're doing an episode on one of the most major developments, most unexpected things to have happened in quite some time. We've got a great guest with us today, and uh, do you want to uh, tell everyone who our guest is, Musharraf? Sure, uh, our guest is the... Uh is the one and only Spencer Ackerman. Spencer is the uh, Guardian um, national security correspondent for The Guardian. Uh, he's been covering uh, national security in the U.S. for over a decade. He's reported out of Afghanistan, out of Iraq, uh, out of Guantanamo Bay. Um, and I think, the you know, most significantly, he was part of the team that, uh, that did the Snowden story uh, for The Guardian. So he's... Uh, he knows a thing or two about doing challenging and difficult stories. And uh, he, I don't think he's one of those folks that's scared of uh, bouncing up against the dominant narrative in his country. Um, so we'd like to think that we are in uh, sort of, you know, we're in the company of a kindred spirit. Uh, and we're so glad you were able to do this uh, today with us, Spencer. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome, welcome to How to Pakistan. Hey, thanks a lot. Um, especially, Musharraf, I wanted to do this because uh, you gave me a really important piece of advice several years ago, uh, which was once I had my kid, not to buy any more black sports jackets because I wouldn't be able to get the baby puke out of that color of sports jacket anymore. So, so this is my this is my payback uh, of that favor. Thanks a lot, man. Nice to meet you, Russell. <laughs> This is the great thing about Musharraf. He makes the world a better place one small step at a time. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I just wanted to ask something, and this is something before we get to, you know, the sort of topic at hand, is that uh, what's your take on, you know, sort of the New York Times, uh, you know, on sort of their about face on Snowden and, you know, where... The Guardian is on that, and how that came about. So, can I be really candid and say I'm I'm not honestly sure what the Times just did on Snowden? Oh, it was that you know they uh, they had this uh, sort of editorial that actually suggested that yes, he deserves to be criminally prosecuted for this. Oh, oh, I think if I respectfully, I think you might be thinking of the Washington Post. Um, sorry, maybe. Sorry, yeah. I got it wrong. Maybe yes. No, no, no yeah. Uh, that was disgraceful. Um, I want to <laughs> like start out and say just throughout this this podcast, I'm going to be speaking for myself. So please, no one at home uh, hold any of my Guardian colleagues or the Guardian as an institution uh, responsible for what I'm saying. I'm just speaking as as me. Um, but yeah, that was a disgraceful thing. Uh, Snowden did something almost unfathomably brave in leaking a tremendous amount of information about how surveillance in the United States affects not only American citizens, but the entire world. We know vastly more about the NSA, its activities, its allies, and their unprecedented reach throughout really every aspect of our digital and communicative lives. And the Washington Post um, did some tremendous reporting on that, really just I can tell you as, as someone who is, you know, writing off and reporting off the same trove, uh, seeing their stuff and just thinking, oh, man, you know, they got to this before we did that, you know, really healthy competition mm -hmm. there. And, you know, we would never editorialize uh, in favor of, of punishing our source. And I, I just I just don't understand uh, the impulse that impelled the Washington Post editorial page to do that. Well, that's. In a sense, isn't that a great, isn't that a great setup, uh, Fussy and Spencer, for for really what happened in this election? At least one angle uh, of this election, which is that 
basically the kind of self-worshipping bubble sort of uh, bubble proliferating uh, culture of mainstream media and this is not just a criticism of US media this this probably applies uh, much more in other countries as much in our country as it does to yours but I mean the reason we're all shocked out of our minds uh, with this Trump victory is 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 isn't part of the responsibility the same kind of attitude that the kind of Washington Posts and the New York Times tend to have with news which is that they are the news and and they decide what's newsy and basically they decided that this guy Donald Trump and what he was saying was was only worth uh, our contempt and not really to be reported as actual news in terms of how much he was resonating with with so many people? Not only that, but you're seeing exactly what the press loves to do right after missing a a major story in the U.S., which is this incredible navel-gazing self-flagellation. Over the last 24 hours, I can't tell you how many pieces I've seen lamenting in, in... really a maudlin, melodramatic way, uh, the insularity of liberal coastal elites in the media by liberal coastal elites in the media, and doing it in such a way that sort of demonstrates that uh, they want to perform this kind of critique rather than address it structurally. Like, if, if what we need to do is take very seriously the concerns that uh, people have in the United States about the devastation wrought by globalization, its human consequences, um, who is getting cut out of the, of the modern economy, then what we would be doing is putting people from these communities into our newsrooms. We would be making sure that we hired people who don't just do drop-in stories like their zoological exercises every you know, four, <laughs> four years or every two years or whatever in, you know, Dateline um, Appalachia or, or Dateline um, the Deep South or something like that. We would have people who live there. We would have people who, who you know, who are writing about essentially their relatives, their neighbors, people with the kind of granular... Uh, and nuanced and subtle feel for the way these developments, you know, hundreds, thousands of miles away, affect these communities without having a kind of commute to them. And we're not doing that, and, you know, we're not going to do that. Now, I just wanted to add one thing, is that in terms of these sort of navel-gazing pieces, one of the advice that seems to come about is that too much has been done in the way of contempt of the other, which has, say, not such a encompassing worldview, but how does that advice really work for the, let's say, the average liberal, progressive, Democrat? How do they reach across the aisle to, say, a group that manifests itself, say, in r- racist attitudes or, um, you know, a high degree of xenophobia? I mean, how does that actually work uh you know that this is the advice but uh maybe yeah. tellingly the divide is so big that uh it's just easier to say i want to kind of go with that from the opposite perspective i don't you know i i've read a million pieces of with that kind of zoological poorly done focus on um, on Trump's white voters. I've also read some really good stuff from the, from the Times, the Post, I think The Guardian has done some, some really good stuff um, that doesn't judge or explain away the phenomenon, but, but really tries to, to explore it and, and, and bring it out in its fullness. What I don't see enough of, what I don't see a lot of, and what I certainly don't see from a structural perspective, is similarly in-depth, nuanced reporting that breaks through the euphemisms of what Trump is proposing to do and whom he proposes to demonize. It, it seems like while right now there's a ton of emphasis on reporting on 
who Trump's voters are and in some nebulous way taking them more seriously, I don't see a similar emphasis on the people who are about to really suffer under a Donald Trump administration. And I've been talking to a number of them over the last 24, 48 hours. So, I mean, isn't it also true, though, Spencer, that the people that are going to suffer probably the most, at least in terms of numbers, are actually the same sorry bastards that voted for him? I mean, right now there's a story coming out that says he's looking at Jamie Dimon and other Wall Street magnates as Treasury Secretary. So oh, That's beautiful. You know, it's going to be there, worse than Hank there Paulson. There, there you go, guys. If you thought Trump was going to stand up to the, to the billionaires, you voted for the wrong billionaire. Well, that, that part was... So, I mean, one of the, uh, the other things is also is that, you know, in this whole thing is that some degree of introspection has suddenly also come out. Whereas this was largely absent, but now just one day it appears as if it's obvious to everyone was that Hillary was the wrong candidate at the wrong time and that the DNC has a lot to answer for. So is this um, just sort of maybe opportunistically trying to give an explanation to what happened or is there a you know significant merit to it because the Democratic Party maybe pitched a large tent, but it just wasn't obvious enough for people that that tent included them. Yeah, I think so. And, and we kind of see this every time there's a losing candidate. The pieces immediately, you know, un unfold that there were these glaring, obvious structural flaws that somehow didn't become major pieces guiding campaign reporting. Um, Hillary Clinton ultimately won the popular vote. If, if you know, whenever they, they you know, finish the, the final tally, if it holds as it does, she ultimately won that vote. At the same time, you know, every critique that you are now seeing of, of the Clintons as being too close to the billionaire class, too close to, uh, too, too close to the billionaire class, too distant in rigorous ways from the downsides of globalization, from the people who've suffered tremendously from it. Not only were all of those factors visible from the from before her candidacy be, began, they were visible the last time she ran for president. They were visible in every single mm -hmm. Bernie Sanders rally. They, like this isn't an obscure thing, and it seems like a a very bizarre exercise as as a reader outside of being a journalist to to suddenly see that very obvious flaw tamped down in the vast majority of Clinton coverage and all of a sudden potted back up, especially when there were all of these structures, you know, whatever you think of Clinton, she had strong structural strengths as a candidate. Uh, they included the coalition that she built and that won the popular vote. So it, it, it seems like this whipsawing effect that um, like you're getting with, with a, with a all of the critiques about how the media, you know, didn't take Trump's people seriously, that you just go between synthesis, that you go between thesis and antithesis, and somehow we never get to synthesis. Is, is so part of... I'll, uh, sure, Marshall, go ahead. Thanks, Fuzzy. Um, I just picking up from that, and again, I don't want to project too much. I'm not American, uh, although so many of us in my generation, Spencer, we've even though, you know, we've looked at this from afar, but those of us, I'm sure Fussy is at least in part similar in this way. If you kind of came of age in the 90s, then you also, and, and you were interested in politics wherever you were, and, you know, you knew the English language, and you looked at the United States as kind of, to some extent, you know, the, the shining sort of, uh, the shining city on a hill. A lot of us, saw the Clinton campaign this time. In 2008, the Clinton campaign was burdened by the fact that it was running against Obama, who was a, who was as sort of transformational a figure at the time, globally, locally, nationally, everywhere as they come. 
And so, you know, it was easy to put away our kind of 90s nostalgia. It was easy to put away what it meant to grow up sort of watching Carville and Stephanopoulos and McConnell and those folks kind of shape the future at that time, the present, and for many years, a future of political communication from a slightly progressive, slightly idealistic sort of standpoint, but one that was very conscious of power. And so those of us that grew up at that time, I think there was this almost worshipping of, of Clintonism or Clintonia, if you will. And, and in a sense, that nostalgia probably obfuscated a lot of political reality for many of us in the run-up to this election. Uh, do you think, and, and a lot of the people that are reporting on this, right? A lot of the people that made the analytical mistakes, a lot of the people that were commissioning the polls and doing the questionnaires and ignoring response bias and, you know, all kinds of other biases that were obviously creeping into the polling. All of those mistakes, I mean, to what extent do you think it was just Clinton-era nostalgia that, that was driving this kind of blind... Uh, this blind assumption that Clinton was a runaway train and was not going to come close to being challenged by Trump. To tell you the truth, I didn't see a lot of Clinton nostalgia. Much of what I saw over the past several years, you know, came from, uh, at least journalistically, uh, people who were much more enamored of the Obama era, people who, you know, I was... I was a teenager during the Clinton years. Um, I didn't have a lot of personal connection uh, to that era of politics. I certainly didn't view it as um, as a time of idealism. I viewed it, you know, then as now as a time of, of retrenchment, of a time of uh, progressivism uh, either getting sold out or redefining itself to be essentially coterminous with conservatism, that it was, it was kind of a rear guard action, that if, unless progressives transformed themselves into something um, that I think we, I guess we now call kind of loosely neoliberalism. Yeah, that pro progressives with a pragmatic approach, I guess, or in a suit. All of that got replaced significantly when Obama got elected. That Obama, the narrative kind of went, and I think there's a lot of basis to that narrative, showed that you didn't have to follow that model to win. You didn't have to vote for the Iraq war. You didn't have to, uh, you know, run the gamut of the, of the Clinton era compromises. You, you know, you didn't have to, you know, destroy welfare. welfare you didn't work. have yeah, to, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, you didn't have to do all of that. In fact, you could do transformational things. Now in reality, um, on social issues, uh, Hillary Clinton in 2008 was to Obama's left on economic issues. They probably had a lot more in common than they had, um, in a in a dissimilar way. And on foreign policy, he was to her left. Um, that all gets blurred a lot when she becomes his secretary of state and becomes sort of the, the, the kind of hawkish end of, of the, of the Obama administration. But, I didn't see a lot of nostalgia for Clinton uh, driving much of, of the conversation around her this time around. Although I have to say, you know, uh, when you talk about not wanting to project uh, your views as a Pakistani onto an American election, you know, I can speak from personal experience. Absolutely no American journalist has ever projected his Americanness onto Pakistan. That never happens. <laughs> you know, we, 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 we know your country in such, you know, minute and fingertip feel detail uh, <laughs> that we would never have an ignorant discussion of politics in Pakistan. And whenever uh, we invoke what politics are in Pakistan, it's, it's always with um, an appreciation for the deep subtleties uh, that, that, that characterize your country. <laughs> you know, that... Uh, <laughs> Brings us to a good point over here. I mean, just uh, two things of interest is that from our perspective, we'd be very interested in knowing what a President Trump means for Pakistan and the relationship going forward. And secondly, I, I think it's also interesting is that this perception, which 
maybe not be very widespread, but it was that maybe Trump would be better in some respects because uh, he brings a, a certain degree of, um, you know, doubt to the way, you know, America conducts itself across different countries where they've had military involvement. So what's your perspective on both? I, I hate to break it to you, but you guys are the wrong religion for for Trump's <laughs> uh, You know, you're, you're definitely the wrong skin color. You're in a really inconvenient part of the world. Um, you know, it's it's kind of a good thing you have nuclear weapons. We're going to be so I, popular I'm with the right wing just, here just, tomorrow. Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously being yeah. just there. Don't don't you know? Don't don't take that seriously. Um, but um, you know, uh, from most of 2010 to the beginning of 2011, uh, something like a 40 square mile uh, portion of your country came under a U.S. airstrike every three days on average. That has gone down significantly although obviously it's not been um it's not been abrogated but everything you know and and i should start out this answer just by saying we have no idea true anyone who says that they understand what what trump will actually do on the world stage is bullshitting because we we just truly have no idea there aren't these these kinds of uh deep-seated uh, convictions that we see in other candidates. We don't have a lengthy track record of policy achievement or, or invocation of, um, of, of certain policy arguments, you know, real ones or, or even superficial signaling. And the people around him um, are not the kind of reliable, experienced mavens um, who, who, you know, whatever you think of them, have track records that you can... Um, that, that you can examine in order to kind of divine uh, these these answers. Well, nevertheless, well, well, let me. Um, you, you do have, you mind if yeah, I? Sorry, Spencer. Do you mind if I just not to challenge that per se, but just to ask um, about your take on uh, LTG Flynn's sort of record and his positions? And it seems to me like. We, and there's again, I you may know more, but I've seen nothing to indicate whether he's more likely NSA or Pentagon secretary or you know whatever, or if at all he'll have any position in in a Trump White uh, White House or Trump administration. But with with yeah, him, sure you got you got I was I was winding up to that. I was okay. my caveat went on my caveat went on too long, I'm but so yeah, sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah. What I what I was going to then say is that. Um, all of the indications from Trump and from uh, from Flynn, uh, who I'll talk about in just one second, um, is that you know he's he says things like I think Islam hates us. Um, he talks about uh, broad suspicion in the darkest terms of all Muslim communities. You know, 1.7 billion people or so across the planet. Um, and whatever conventionally understood isolationism uh, he exhibits or desires for retrenchment that uh, he talks about, whether it's, you know, some form of rapprochement with, with Russia on whatever terms. Um, the exception to this has come uh, to Islamic countries and communities for which he typically describes his policy solutions in terms of violence, in terms of bringing the weight of the most punitive aspects of the national security apparatus against them, both as individuals and as groups and as countries. Um, his solution to ISIS has been, I think the, the, the second phrase was to bomb the shit out of them. Uh, he talks about stealing oil in Iraq. Um, I don't think for, you know, Afghanistan and Pakistan came up not at all during the campaign. It was it was just a, a shocking absence, considering you know Afghanistan remains the locus of, of America's longest war and and one that's um, going extremely poorly. Um, with with Pakistan, it's 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 just a mind boggling absence. Um, but you mentioned General Flynn to run through 
who this person is for, for listeners who may not be familiar. This is basically the only prominent member of the U.S. military and the most significant member of the U.S. national security apparatus who's sided and thrown his lot in with, with Trump. Um, and this guy, in a nutshell, uh, was an intelligence officer at the, at the elite joint special operations command, um, who people know as uh, the, the organization that ended up successfully hunting and killing Osama bin Laden. Um, he went on to uh, lead the kind of in, in intelligence uh, circles um, backwater defense intelligence agency, um, an organization without the prestige or the cachet of the, the CIA or the NSA. Um, and he lost the power struggle uh, with the nominal leader of U.S. intelligence, uh, Jim Clapper, the director of national intelligence, as, as we call him over here, um, over the, the future course of the NSA. And that, by um, general account, seems to have kind of radicalized and embittered him um, towards his uh, his final days in in, in his career um, as a as a serving government official, uh, he began to talk much more um, darkly and in an alarmist fashion about the spread of what what he calls radical Islam. Um, and and since he's been in office, since he's he's been out, uh, that's really been his kind of major thing, and that's what um, drove him to Trump and and, and sparked this alliance. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that he'll become Trump's national security advisor, which is basically uh, the person at the White House entrusted with coordinating um, all of the different branches of the U.S. national security apparatus, from the Pentagon to the CIA to the State Department uh, and so on. Um, it's It's got the benefit of being an agency that's extremely powerful by dint of its uh, closeness to the president. Um, and also doesn't have to testify on Capitol Hill. So it's it's maximum power and minimum oversight. Whether that's actually going to be what he gets, I don't know. There may be an attraction to making uh, Flynn director of national intelligence and kind of overseeing the 16 intelligence agencies, because that's the job that Clapper has now and turnabout is the sweetest revenge. Yeah. Is there any chance that he gets the Pentagon? Because... In a sense, for me as well, one of the one of the things that I said um, talking about the election here on Pakistani media was that you know we've seen in many ways we've seen the movie of an American electorate electing somebody who seemed uh, completely unprepared for the job within our lifetimes. I mean, when George W. Bush was elected president. Um, it was a shock for, for many right-thinking people. And the thing that was transformational, among many other things, but the thing that you've covered so well and, and so elegantly over the last, again, decade, decade and a half, has essentially been the footprints left behind by the decision of awarding the state, uh, sorry, the, uh, the Pentagon to, and, and its associated um, agencies, to a group of people that had radical views about how to change America's approach to national security. I think Flynn has similarly radical ideas, not in the same direction necessarily, but wouldn't an ambitious reformer like Flynn want to want to have the lay of the land uh, in terms of budget and, and impact of, of the Pentagon over the perhaps more day-to-day -day influential position of NSA? He would, but legally he can't. Uh, there's a law in the U.S., it's, it's obscure, but nevertheless it's on the books, that says uh, a military officer has to be retired for seven years before uh, eligibility to, to become U.S. Secretary of Defense. Um, I think off the top of my head, Flint is either two or three years out. So, you know, if Trump is reelected, then perhaps he gets, he gets to that that date, but right now he can't. That's not to say he can't have an outsized footprint um, in other positions or exercises influence in other positions. Um, I haven't really seen him be talked about on much of a short list for CIA. He might be. Um, there are a number of other candidates um, who might take that role, um, but, um, but it's possible there as well. 
And just since one we're thing, on the topic in terms of cabinet, of, sorry, Fuzzy, go ahead. Uh, I I was just curious that in terms of say Trump's own sort of historic flexibility and his maybe his lack of core beliefs, is there any chance that he's going to mitigate? what he said and, you know, what appears to be what he believes. I mean, he's got a lot of bravado. He goes in unprepared, but that he'll be susceptible to a lot of the existing, say, advice and uh, strategy that's in place that he'll mitigate much of um, what he's been promising, what he's been saying, at least also in terms of how he deals with the rest of the world. It's entirely possible. Um there are a number of structural uh, constraints that also tend to bind presidents on foreign policy. Um, the bureaucracy is one of them. Um, when is this podcast going to run? When is this, when, when is this going to be out? Uh, we're going to put it like up. an hour after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so I guess I can't, hmm. uh, I just ask cause I don't honestly know when, uh, my next piece is going to run, but um, it kind of goes into this um, a lot. Uh, there are some considerations right now amongst people within the national security bureaucracy I've been talking to about whether uh, they they can sort of stay and resist and try and exercise that that moderating influence, you know, within the gears of of, of the national security apparatus, or whether they feel that. Uh, the stuff that he has proposed and what he stands for and what he's uh, inspired amongst his followers is so serious a departure from uh, what they're used to and, and traditional American values that they have to quit and can't really be a part of it. Um, as well, you know, a lot of what uh, it seems to me that presidents do and presidents stay with in terms of their flexibility really depends on like how much they come into office animated by it and, and caring about it really deeply and what they don't. And I think no matter what Trump is going to have to do something uh, rather, I think from a liberal's perspective, draconian on immigration. Um, I don't know how much from a, I don't know how much he cares so much about foreign policy. I don't know how much that's going to become, you know, an issue uh, on which, you know, we're going to get another story uh, about how the man ran against Wall Street and now he's appointing some, you know, he's looking at some Wall Street billionaire uh, for a senior post in his administration. It's, it's, that's hard to say. All, you know, U.S. allies, traditional U.S. allies right now are having precisely this conversation. Um, you, you've, you know, from, from uh, Theresa May in the U.K. Uh, to Abe in Japan um, Netanyahu in Israel, I, you know, um, I'm sure the Saudis, uh, all members of NATO, they're trying to figure out who this guy actually is. They don't have the typical contacts, uh, from previous administrations that they can use as intermediaries because Trump just hasn't had those people around him. And in many cases, particularly on the right, the people who normally sign on, uh, with any Republican presidential candidate, Many of them have refused on principle to to be part of the Trump campaign and the Trump administration. And there's a lot of soul searching right now on whether uh, that ought to hold or, you know, because people truly didn't expect him to be president in these circles. So they might also be considering that if they don't join the administration, the check that you reference just isn't going to be there on him and all of his uh, worst instincts uh, can run amok. So I, I guess that, that segues into the question I was going to ask earlier, but I, I'm going to ask it in a sort of roundabout, long, long drawn out way, which allows me to speak on the podcast, um, which, speak is, on it. which is rare because, you know, I'm a very, very, uh, I'm a man of very, very few words, uh, Spencer. Taciturn is, is how I've, I've, you know, known you throughout, throughout our friendship. <laughs> Um, reticent, reluctant, you know. Yeah, yeah, very reserved and contained. Nicholas Kristof this morning, where we go from here with President Trump, my column on gritting our teeth and giving Trump a chance. Foreign affairs this morning, are Trump-style populist fascist? No, 
They are certainly anti-liberal, but not anti-democratic. Uh, New York Times opinion, Trump was a bomb white Americans were willing to throw at a system they felt was failing them. The You say, and, and quite rightly, I'm, I'm absolutely certain you say that there are certain Republicans who, you know, have kind of disavowed him and, you know, don't want to work in his administration. And yet, less than 12 hours from the sort of victory speech, one, there was a race to his door, uh, I, I bet somebody, and I don't know if it's right or wrong, but I bet somebody that 3 a.m. Uh, the night of the election, or the the morning after, he had already there had already been representations from the big four or five Wall Street banks in his face. That's how good these oh, people sure. are. That's how good these people are at protecting their interests. And so anybody who thought that this guy was going to break down Wall Street, I mean, it's insanity. I think that Wall Street and the stock market and the housing bubble, like all of those things are going to go through the roof. I think the U.S. is going to see massive economic growth. I don't think it'll be to the benefit of any of the suckers that voted for him. But um, but but rich people are going to get a lot richer in America, at least for some time after after he takes over. And in keeping with that, I, I wonder what other characters you think might be joining the administration to partake in the gravy train. I mean, is there really a chance of Newt Gingrich coming into a cabinet? Uh, you know, like how ridiculous is it going to get? Or are, are there going to be a whole bunch of people that we've never heard of? I mean, you've heard of, but people like me and Fussy haven't living out here in, in the boonies. Uh, you know, uh, what is the what is the mood? What are you hearing about what this cabinet is going to look like and how much control they're going to be given uh, by by President Trump. Uh, so I just want to add that I really hope Chris Christie gets something. Anyone who could do that kind of song and dance really deserves a place in that administration. I think it's a certainty that uh, Chris Christie, especially because you know he's at something like twenty percent popularity in in New Jersey where he's governor and has nowhere to go um, but the Trump administration. He goes in. Uh, Gingrich, certainly. Um, Rudy Giuliani. Attorney General? Um, If not Attorney General, then uh, maybe the the Department of Homeland Security. Um, He, uh, this morning on TV, uh, talked about wanting a cybersecurity portfolio. Uh, So that, that made me think because, you know, you can't put, you can't put Rudy at NSA. Um, that possibly uh, the Department of Homeland Security is in his future if Trump has already promised uh, Attorney General to Christie. But yeah, if not, I would think it's either going to be Christie or Giuliani as Attorney General. Um, so those uh, New York babies like me who who came of age in, in Giuliani's mayoralty, guess what? Rudy Giuliani is about to have a civil rights division. Yeah, it's uh, unbelievable. Be, I mean, it's unbelievable. Um, and then, you know, the levels below below that is where you're going to start seeing uh, the randos. Um, you know, Flynn, before the, Trump, before the Trump campaign, was extremely obscure, um, even to a lot of Americans. Um, basically, if you didn't spend your time focusing on national security and, and personages, you never heard of, of Mike Flynn. Um, you'll probably, I, you know, I haven't heard a lot of, specific names on that level. I am very curious now that, that Flynn's gamble is paid off about how many people from within U.S. special operations um, might come out and basically say like, yeah, Mike was my guy um, and I want to I wanna go where this train is going. Um, that I can see happening. Um, some very conspicuous absences um, from the campaign this year, either for Trump or for Clinton, uh, we're um, some of the very high-profile leaders of, of, of the special operations community. Uh, General McChrystal, who was McRaven and McChrystal, basically, um, both of whom worked with, uh, worked with Flynn uh, intimately at, at JSOC. Uh, McChrystal, uh, who was essentially Flynn's major partner, in transforming JSOC into more of an intelligence exploitation operation. Um, these guys, you know, 
McChrystal was certainly to to Flynn's left. I'm I'm not sure so much about McRaven. I'm not, and I'm not saying that to be cagey. I mean, like I don't know what McRaven's politics are. I don't um, think anybody does. I think but who that's, knows? I'm, that's the genius of McRaven, as opposed to all these other guys. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just sort of waiting to see who those who those personages would be, um, because a lot of the the typical people have kind of ruled themselves out or, or don't want to be part of it. I'm very curious uh, to see how um, General Dunford, uh, the current Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, chairman, uh, will interact, at least at the beginning of, of the Trump administration, with whomever Trump makes Secretary of Defense. Um, you know, it's possible that um, it may, may not happen. I, I have no idea, but um, people have been talking about Jeff Sessions uh, the Alabama senator who was one of the first uh, national level Republicans when the others were repudiating Trump to, to enthusiastically sign on with him. Um, by all accounts so far, uh, the major criteria for for you know getting a, a sweet post in the Trump cabinet is showing that kind of early loyalty and that and that deference. So I have a question about a somebody of a Pakistani background in that list. I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Sajid Tadar, but Sajid, I think no, is, I, I have not. Okay, so Sajid Tadar is the guy that came up with the group called Muslims for Trump. And I was saying, I was thinking today. Um, he's a doctor. No, he's not a doctor. Uh, I don't want to say too much because I don't know what level, what cabinet level he might get and how much trouble we might be <laughs> for saying silly things. But um, also because I just don't know. Uh, but but uh, I, I did I did say to somebody, in fact, Declan was covering the, the election for, for the New York Times. And I said to him, uh, Declan, there's a box on angle even here when, when we were talking about Trump um, and... Uh, and and I'd seen a clip of his uh, on television. Do you think, Spencer, that just for the sake of appearances, even um, that there'll be some affirmative action uh, uh, hires or postings in 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 and around a Trump White House? Yeah, I would expect that. I think he would need uh, some kind of beard in in order to to pull off a lot of the stuff that that he's been talking about. Um, whether it's it's mass deportation or, you know, building his famous wall, he'll need to have some, you know, Hispanic face in the administration. Um, you know, we see this, this very cynical game, uh, in administrations, you know, Democrat and Republican, um, when, you know, the, the, the surest way, uh, to ensure that you can do something to truly harm a minority community is to give it a face from that community. So I would, I would expect something, I, I, you know, tell me more about, about this guy you're talking about, because, you know, I never heard of him. Yeah, I, I, all I know is that he's the chairperson and founder of Muslims for Trump, and I think he gave the closing prayer at the, at, maybe not the closing prayer, but there was a, he had a significant role at the Republican National Convention, um, and and so I think it's going to be very interesting because I don't think there were a lot of Muslims that wanted to be anywhere near uh, Donald Trump uh, while Khizr Khan was becoming a celebrity. Um, and and now that it's over, yeah. it turns out that the smelly guy is the one holding the roses. So it's uh, it's going to be an interesting time trying to assess, you know, how those things are going to play out. Yeah, I would totally expect that. Um, if there if there was a high profile Muslim American who who embraced Trump, uh, then that person's going to have in, in Trump's calculation value to being in his administration or advising it or. Uh, selling a policy. All right. The, the now that Trump's in, I mean, who takes the charge from the Democratic Party in becoming the face of being the antithesis of Trump during his presidency? So uh, this is a really wide open space. Um, the most immediate answer to that question uh, is uh, my home state of New York, Senator Chuck Schumer. Um, who, for all, you know, we started out talking about, about Hillary Clinton and her connections to the plutocracy. Um, that's, that's Schumer as well. Um, if, if Schumer has, you know, much of, you know, so much of Schumer's political profile is about um, doing what Wall Street wants um, and delivering for Wall Street, 
So if there's, you know, a moment where you could see a contrast or a departure, um, that's, that's not really going to be the Senate. And, and um, the Senate is where any one legislator can, particularly in the minority, can play an outsized role in influence and in stopping uh, a president's legislative agenda. So unless Schumer is about to either completely transform himself politically, um, I, I'm not seeing how he can benefit from um, some of the voices, you know, whether it's Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, um, who are saying, like, this is the time to show that uh, the Democratic Party has the interests of the working class, not just the white working class, but the working class of all different backgrounds around the country at its heart. Um, outside of, of Schumer in that, like, I truly have no idea. Um, it, it, it seems right now like a democratic decimation that, uh, you know, if, you know, Bernie Sanders is in his, is in his 70s, uh, what, and, and basically the Democratic Party fought Bernie Sanders as an institution tooth and nail throughout the, throughout the, the presidential campaign, um, is it going to want to turn the keys over to that guy? Uh, you know, if I, if I covered electoral politics, I would probably have, you know, more of of an informed answer for you, but I, I just don't. Um, and outside of that, you know, the Democrats don't have state houses. They don't have a lot of, uh, people kind of waiting on deck, uh, to, to, to step up from the States and, and be the kind of anti-Trump or, or be the one who can, who can eat Trump's lunch, but without, uh, the the bigotry that he likes for dessert. I don't I don't know. The, that um, metaphor kind of got away from me. Uh, the 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 question for the sort of more medium or longer term, and and by that I really mean sort of six months down the line and beyond. Uh, Spencer is uh, because uh, you know I've had interactions with that community principally. Uh, that's why the thought comes to my mind. There's clearly an anti-intellectualism that drives uh, what has produced this electoral outcome, right? And when I sort of do a quick sort of survey of people that I follow at the American Enterprise Institute or the Heritage Foundation or even Cato, which is certainly not sort of neocon or anything, but, but it is libertarian and therefore not liberal per se, and, and obviously at, at the Center for American Progress and, and Center for New American Security, all of these different think tanks, Brookings, what have you, CSIS, all of them. What What is going to happen to those people? You see, until today, like until now, you've had a kind of a, yes, some are more liberal than others, some are more conservative, but essentially there's a bunch of reasonably smart people who, whose job is to either lubricate or cause resistance to public policy formulation, particularly on national security, but also on economic issues. And now you have a president who is singularly lacking an interest in any of this and whose elect, sort of electoral support, whose mandate is also contemptuous of, of, of papers and white papers and, you know, draft papers or what have you. So what is the medium to long-term impact do you think this is going to have on the think tank community, which is already reeling from kind of the, the fact that so much of the thinking is bought and paid for by the very people that it's supposed to, at, at least times, uh, chide or, or you know, uh, uh, stop from, or help stop from doing things? So you've kind of got two competing poles uh, within which this, this discussion is going to take place. The first poll is that uh, it can't be overstated. Trump has pretty much, a con if not a contempt for policy, a disinterest in it. Um, you, you could see that on display at the debates. Uh, this just isn't where he lives. Um, the other poll was that any administration needs people to come up with, explain, articulate the policies that it's ultimately going to pursue. And that's where I think, you know, you're probably going to see a lot of Heritage Foundation people, Heritage being 
um, the 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 think tank that's uh, probably the most uh, sympathetic to the or, or heritage isn't neocon but it's neocon simpatico. Um, it's it's very much in the interests of the donor class uh, for the Republican Party. So um, you know, a lot of climate skepticism. Um, definitely a lot of a lot of military enthusiasm. Um, it's it's kind of I, I guess you would call um, very likely um, probably most comfortable with with Paul Ryan's blend of of politics than it is with Trump's. But you know, Ryan, however uneasily, ultimately cast his lot in with Trump and. That's going to pay off, um, and the, the the basic deal that that Ryan is is getting out of out of out of Trump, unless Trump decides he wants to go to war with Ryan, is that you know Ryan's views on on Social Security and, and Medicare and entitlement spending um, are going to be the legislative agenda of 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 the the Republican Party under Trump. Um, those guys go there. They're they're going to go into um, that orbit uh, on the Hill, um, or they're going to be in positions that tr- that that Ryan and Newt Gingrich um, recommend to Trump that he puts them he, he puts them into. Um, so basically, AI what you're saying is and, basically what you're saying is rather than working towards the White House, which is what is essentially by definition so much of the, the think tank world does. It, they're going to start working to where there's going to be an appetite for policy, which will be the top of the house and various ministries or departments. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I don't think you're going to see too many of those guys go into, into the white house, into either the domestic policy council or, or the, um, the national security council. Um, that, that's going to be the place where we're going to see a lot of functionaries. And, you know, I would expect that you're also going to see, uh, out in the agencies, certainly in senior positions, lots of friends of Trump and the Trump Organization. Um, and if uh, the Heritage guys go anywhere, it's going to be in, in kind of lower level political appointee positions. Um, what what at the Pentagon are known as DASDs for Deputy Assistant yeah, Secretary Deputy of Assistant Defense. Yeah, Deputy Assistant Secretaries of State, Deputy Assistant Secretaries of Defense. Yeah, yeah. And and those are those are powerful positions, sure. but they're very below the radar positions. You know, yeah, you, and, you levels, and I know about they're four them. levels below the from from the top, right? So yeah, yeah. You you and I know about them because we're journalists, and it's our job to know about them. The, the public just won't. Yeah. Um, they're where a lot of policy um, gets gets formulated and bubbles up, or where a lot of policy that's been ordered from on high gets fleshed out. Yeah. Spencer. I've also, just another thing is that in terms of, um, you know, recent memory, you've had two, let's say, poor candidates returned on the basis of the electoral college. Is there any sense that, you know, the system needs reform? I mean, there's there's kind of the general sense amongst, you know, average Americans uh, that the electoral college is this very weird thing uh, that very often, uh, particularly if you're if you're on the left and you remember Bush v. Gore, or now that you you're seeing um, Hillary Clinton lose the presidency after winning the popular vote narrowly, uh, needs to be abolished because it overrepresents the interests geographically of the different states above what, in the aggregate, is the American uh, voting preference. But, you know, there's zero appetite uh, amongst anyone with any power to change it. There's a reason why once the Democrats uh, came back into power under the Obama administration, they didn't do anything with that. It's, it's just what the system is. And, and I can't see that going away. I can't see anyone deciding what we need to do is, is get rid of the Electoral College. You know, you, you never know when you're going to benefit from it uh, when you're out of power. Uh, and, and end up in the situation where you're the one who benefits from losing the popular vote but winning the Electoral College. So too much uh, structural incentives for inertia there uh, to make me really think that it's going to go away in my lifetime. Spencer, what, what, a, 
what a great privilege and treat it's been talking to you. I I got a sense that this wasn't as fun a conversation for any of us. I mean, it was a delight to have the conversation, but you know, usually we do a lot more laughing. Uh, we make jokes, <laughs> yeah. and I think that partly there's just this this dark cloud that seems to have descended over the sensibilities of decent people everywhere, um, good people, thinking people everywhere. That this really is an epical, it really is a transformational moment. The fact that this election has happened is going to have ramifications and implications, not just for Americans, but for people all around the world. And that's why we wanted to talk to you about this on, on How to Pakistan. I'm so very grateful that you made the time um, and really uh, enlightened us with, with a, lot of, uh, a lot of meaningful insight. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much, um, particularly for having me on How to Pakistan when I don't know how to Pakistan. Um, I, I just want to, you know, if I could say one final thing. Um, amongst, you know, my friends and my sources and my contacts, um, there, the sense of fear and anxiety here is real, and it is not equally distributed. Um, I have uh, black friends who are talking about leaving this country. I have Muslim friends and Muslim sources uh, who are just terrified and, and really worried that uh, what Trump has unleashed and what Trump uh, now has an opportunity to do with all of the, the truly awesome powers of the national security apparatus, it's all going to fall on them. And it's a terrifying time in a way that um, I can't experience in, in, in a in a visceral way. I'm, I'm not put at risk in, in, in that way. Um, and, uh, you know, seeing this happen uh, after Brexit, after uh, the rise of, of Golden Dawn in Greece, um, after uh, the most aggressive and revanchist Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, you know, you know, name, name your your deterioration. You know, five years of 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 a of a devastating civil war in Syria um, that that has sort of sapped uh, the humanity out of out of that country. Narendra Modi, um, Narendra Modi, Prime Minister of India. Indeed, um, Netanyahu in Israel. You know, go go down the line. Uh, it just it seems like there is a global unraveling, uh, and and we're not sure of the concept, you know, China in the South China Sea, we, we, we're, we're seeing something that, that feels like, uh, the end of the old order, um, but not yet the, the birth of the next one. And historically, those are the most dangerous times. Well, I think the, um, and yeah, the, I just wanted to add is that, you know, I think that's a great way of, uh, just bringing this to a close. Spencer, it's been a privilege speaking to you. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, really happy to have had you on on the program. It's been my honor and my pleasure, you guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Thank you once again, Spencer. So, we've come to the end of that. And... Musharraf, any more on Born on the US, Born in the USA? Well, I think we're going to be talking about this election for a long time to come, but for now, we thank our, uh, our listeners for listening. Thanks once again to Spencer for joining, and uh, as always, thank you, Fasizaka, for the offers, and God bless you. <laughs>